We hear a lot about two pandemics happening at the same time. The COVID-19 pandemic and the racism pandemic that are dual crises that we must tackle. But COVID-19 is new. It is a novel coronavirus after all. Racism is not new. It's been around as long as human beings have been around. And if you consider racism to be a pandemic, it has been ongoing for thousands of years without a vaccine. That said, it has been getting worse in the last few years and accelerated because of COVID. This is the podcast of the Canadian Psychological Association. Welcome to Mindful. My name is Eric Bowman. I'm the communications person at the CPA. And my guest today is an expert on structural and systemic racism. With an Indian and Jewish background, she brings her multicultural heritage to her work on multicultural issues at Université Laval. My name is Maya Yampolsky. I'm assistant professor at Université Laval in Quebec City. I'm actually, I just got tenure, so I'm associate professor starting in June. So then... <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. And my areas of expertise are really broadly social and cultural psychology, but my focus is on the experience of managing multicultural and intersectional identities and how that's related to our intercultural relationships and broader social issues, especially systemic racism and how racism enters into our, our personal lives. And that kind of work, I mean, obviously there's, that's so broad also, right? Huge. <laughs> <laughs> there's so many things uh, that you can, that you can seize on. Uh, and, and I'm, most of the focus of this is going to be COVID, uh, just because that's what our Psychology Month theme is. It seems like the obvious one. Uh, how does systemic r racism mm -hmm. impact COVID, and how does COVID impact systemic racism? And I know that's an enormous, like, yes. very broad thing to ask, but uh, no, but it's a great, it's a great starting point because they they do influence each other. Very um, yeah, like on, on one hand, we already had the the rich terrain of pre-existing racism that was just you know, ready for any gigantic social shift to, to emerge. Um, so what we find is that, and I, not from my own research, but just from looking at the research that's been done during COVID on racism, um, and I'm impressed at how much there is, but on the research that's been done on these relationships, we see like many, many different factors. So first is that, I guess the most obvious and the, the soonest one that we saw was the manifestations of anti-Asian racism that came from associating COVID with China and with Wuhan. Even like with the World Health Organization has indicated that, you know, we don't name diseases after places, but people kept insisting on calling it China virus, Wuhan virus, Kung Fu virus, like all these different names that would associate it with um, China, but also that generalizes to East Asia as well. So from there, we also saw a lot of hate speech that was emerging. There's a lot of hate crime uh, in Toronto like and in Montreal. I remember seeing news reports about uh, defacements of businesses, of sacred spaces like Buddhist temples and things like mm. that. Um, and lots of online uh, and, and survey research that talked about um, just Asian Americans and Asian Canadians and just generally Asians abroad, like so like all around the world uh, in diaspora. And people who look phenotypically Asian, like Northeastern uh, states in India. So people being targeted um, as being like the source of the virus or as being associated with disease. So this is not a new thing. 
Like, unfortunately, we've seen this pattern emerge before. Uh, part of it has to do with part of it has to do with humans having these shortcuts wired into us to be able to avoid danger. So then it's like we see disease and we're like, oh, disease. What? Who is this associated with? The whole group done. And then we just right. avoid the group and we associate them with disease. Mm. But like that's not it's it's not as simple as that because what we have is that like specific times that like it's people are associated with disease strategically um like during colonization or during like vast dehumanizing genocidal movements and things like that even when there is no disease so it's not the disease needs to be present to have these associations we often do it as 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 par for the course with racism with dehumanization with uh, colonization with different movements that have to do with ostracizing or excluding or harming other people so right. it's like a tangled web of like harm and self-protection and group protection and and a long ugly history of harming other people that leads to us associating any group with disease but in this case the one that emerged the most was uh um those who were from east asian backgrounds Right. And what we're talking about there then is a more overt sort of racism, right? It's, yeah. and so it, it strikes me and tell me if this makes sense or if I'm wrong, but it strikes me that there was a real increase in overt racism over say the four, five, six years before yeah. uh, the, the virus arrived, before the pandemic started. Mm -hmm. Uh and certainly rises in hate groups, white supremacy, that sort of thing. Yes. Did the pandemic change that? Did it accelerate it? Was there something that was that a triggering effect? Or was that just the natural continuation of this rise in in hate? Yeah, so that's a good question, too, because it wasn't it wasn't as though everything was great. And then right. yeah. <laughs> suddenly, <laughs> but rather like, so yes, like you were saying, there was a I mean, here's the thing, is that we like to think that, like, we don't have any overt racism, but it's, it's, it never really left. Mm -hmm. um, and we have seen more, um, let's say, really overt, we can even say audacious, uh, like, presentations, like, where, like, you know, like, hate groups and, and extreme right-wing groups have been a little more uh, bold, or they have more chutzpah in coming forward, is what I've been seeing. Right. Um, and that happened not just in the States, but in Canada, too. Um, we see that with movements like um, Bill 21 in, in Quebec. Yeah. Uh, you know, like, so anything that essentially targets a minority group uh, will essentially condone hate towards that group. It singles them out for, for discrimination. And so mm -hmm. we were seeing a lot of that already. And that continued as well. So even, uh, even you know, I focused on, on anti-Asian discrimination, but anti-Muslim discrimination continued and amped up as well because of COVID. Like, so it was already there, but then, then there's a disease. So it's like, oh, see, it's even worse now because of this group. So false, right. false associations had been made because there was already groups that were targeted for hatred, for discrimination, um, were being blamed for society's troubles and ills. So um that and and also the what we see so that in a way ties to the next topic uh for how covid and racism are interconnected because that it's about vulnerable populations um right. so what we saw already is that there were already many many different vulnerable populations around the world but in canada as well uh so including um immigrants refugees um black people native peoples uh pretty much anybody that has been disadvantaged by institutions by society 
um, and usually over generations and, and is very much embedded in our history. Right. So all of these groups had been even more vulnerable and that leads to health inequities because let's say a lot of research showed like for, for black uh, populations, like uh, black Canadians, Caribbean origin, African origin, um, enslaved people's origins, like from centuries ago that like these populations have, have continuously been targeted for like, you know, like for being black. And so as a result of that, there's stress and there's illness that builds up in the body. So a lot more of these um, members of the population have chronic illness, which makes them more vulnerable to contracting COVID and to having more intense experiences of COVID, like more, more like worse cases to having worse cases and then also more vulnerable to mortality due to COVID. So that was a clear trend that emerged from the COVID like data once everything was a little more like clear, like, okay, who's impacted, who's coming into the hospital, who's being, who's dying. And the clear pattern emerged where like black Canadians, black people around the world were the worst, um, um, the most impacted. And same with indigenous peoples, indigenous peoples were the most vulnerable. Um, and this is also due to existing racism, creating existing health conditions, creating existing vulnerabilities. So that it just ramped it all up. Um, and then on top of that, a lot of people of color, especially black people, indigenous people, and like, let's say in the creation of the racial hierarchy, like who's on top and who's on bottom. So you end up with more like um, Latin American or Latin Canadian, um, uh, Caribbean, as I mentioned, black, uh, indigenous, and also Southeast Asian uh, ends up in that, in that like group of people who are the most marginalized out of the, out of the ethnic minorities. Mm -hmm. um, and they also end up being more frontline workers, people working in essential right. services, people working in healthcare, people working in long-term care, like all of these areas are more susceptible to exposure. So on top of health inequalities, um, and, and existing conditions, you also end up with increased exposure by virtual <laughs> work. And so it just creates this, this storm of, of exposure and vulnerability and disproportionate affecting people. So that's, that's yeah. not overt racism, like hatred, but it is like something that manifests from structural racism being there and creating inequalities that then come, come to fruition when a pandemic hits. Right. And, and the idea too, that I, you know, the essential workers, right? Yes. The frontline workers and all these people of long-term care homes, right? For example, uh, I know a lot of uh, refugees end up working at long-term care homes. A lot of, uh, you know, new immigrants. I worked at the Dementia Society uh, with my friend Herman, who was a, a neurologist in Venezuela. Mm -hmm. I just country, came to uh, Canada and started volunteering with the Dementia Society while working in a long-term care home because it was the only job he could get that was close to what he knew, right? Yes. Uh, but they're also the, the lowest paid jobs. The more yeah. essential the job is, it appears to be also the lowest paid job. Yes. It appears to be the marginalized populations that end up taking those jobs for that reason in a lot of if there's so much and like and just speaking to that too it's like the way that we value work like who gets to have like what is high status and who gets to have it is, right. is often determined by these norms surrounding gender surrounding ethnicity like it's like these structures that are created where it's like okay so you get to access this and you don't get to access this and we get to access this and we're more paid. So it, it creates wealth gaps and wealth inequalities.
Yeah. Now, have, have you been doing any COVID-specific research yourself on this subject? So I've not been looking at COVID specifically. Um, I've been running my research during COVID, which has been an adventure. <laughs> but like for myself, it's it's uh, I wasn't necessarily looking to adapt my whole research program or to, to start a new thing. So much as that, like we, in collaboration with Andrew Ryder and with uh, Rebecca Baye, who is a doctoral student at Korea with Andrew, um, she's led this paper that we're that we've all worked on that that's looking more at those trends around culture interacting with COVID. Um, for better or worse, in a way, you know, like we're looking at cultural psychology broadly, where it involves cross-cultural comparisons, but also like unpacking, understanding how cultural values are at play um, in the experience and in the the manifestation of COVID in different societies, and also right. like, like minority-related psychology. So that's more my area where it's like racism, just like inequalities, right. marginalization, the racism experience, and how that is at play as well. So we were looking at. Um, very broadly, kind of like a big literature review, but in the through the lens of like, why is it important to understand cultural processes when looking at COVID, which we often just think of as like, it's a physical disease and it affects everybody the same. And it's like, no, it doesn't. <laughs> like, so, right, so right. unpacking that like interaction, like it took a long time for psychology to also realize like, oh yeah, cultures at play in psychology. It's not just like a process that every human exists in, but really that psychology and culture are always connected and so to understand culture is to understand a person's psychology instead of it being just like you have some rules and everybody experiences it the same way so right. the same you said for disease because disease isn't just a you know a physical experience it's very much related to um our you know social experience like and our vulnerabilities in society as well so that's the work that we've been doing it's been more kind of like I, We've been lucky to that there's been so much work that people have suddenly done like during COVID. Yeah. In all sectors that we were like, well, let's just take a take a look and see what what's out there. And um, it's really impressive to see all the work that's been done. And it's also very depressing just to see like all the ways that people have been affected and, and I imagine, and, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was talking to Stephen Taylor earlier this week, uh, who's a professor at UBC and wrote the book on pandemics and psychology and it was released in October of 2019 so you know a month before COVID came to Wuhan that he released this book yes. and he was saying that uh, you know and he had studied all the historical pandemics and you know the trends that went along with them right and no matter where in the world it was right the 1918 flu the Zika virus Ebola whatever Mm -hmm. The trends in the community tended to be the same throughout. There was a rise in altruism, but also a rise in racism. There was, you know, conspiracy theories. There were people who refused to follow the rules. There were this, yeah. that, right? And uh, he was saying that more research has been done since COVID began on pandemics than has mm -hmm. been done in the history of all pandemics in the history of the world, right? Yeah. So it's finally, I think, going to give us a sense now culturally right all these various places in the world how are they yes. responding versus the other places That's yes and like it, it gives us um I, I think the scale of this pandemic has really drawn everyone's attention uh compared to before where it's like oh it's just over there like or you know like it's uh somewhere in africa thank god we're not in africa you know like right. that would be like, we're not involved, we wash our hands of this, and we don't have to concern ourselves with how we're related to Africa. 
Yeah. Um, but instead, like now it's like, oh, we're affected too? Oh, stop the presses. Let's get our <laughs> researchers on it. Like, <laughs> right. So, yeah. yeah, but but that is the benefit of the benefit. That is the, the kind of unexpected benefit or outcome of this is that now we, we do have more information on pandemics like that, that just so many articles, so many like people running studies, all this data from all these different sectors, including psychology. Um, that now like really bolster the field so that whenever something like this happens, we, we have far more information and hopefully people will, will look to it and draw, draw from it to, to make the best decisions. Yeah. Now, do you hope that, do you think it's possible uh, that when down the line, this is all over, that people in general might have a greater sense of their place in a global world right just the i guess more of a more of an interest in what happens in africa or what happens in south america when something like this happens there that you know maybe now they have some sense of what it's like to be in that situation yeah i mean i okay i have a bit more of a pessimistic view where I live. <laughs> don't bring but me down right no. <laughs> based on these pandemics and previous illness times is usually that we tend to reinforce the same downward social comparison, the same tendency to compare ourselves to others in order to make us, ourselves feel better or to, to look at others and what's happening in, let's say, Africa as, it, through the lens of fear instead of through the lens of responsibility. Like we don't look at, at our international relations with developing countries as the direct result of colonization and post-colonial economic relations and political relations that make it so that, you know, the disadvantage that's experienced between these countries is very much our responsibility as well. So we don't look at like, hey, we've created scarcity in Africa by consuming all these resources right. and like, and like now they don't have resources to combat like illness or things like that. Instead, it's like so dirty, so poor in Africa, poor Africa. Right. right? It, I see that pattern emerging over and over and over again, including in contexts of disease and illness, and of course in the pandemic. Uh, you know, like and that emerged with the the racist discourse around China, where it's like, oh, like criticizing food and like they're so dirty and no discrimination with what they eat and blah blah blah. So I see more of that emerging when when these things happen. But <laughs> to also look at the right, pos something positive, come on, something positive, something positive, <laughs> 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 like. In a way, I look at the negative because it's like, if we look at it, we can repair and we can like connect in a more accountable and authentic way. <laughs> but what I do see happening is that it has raised like the awareness that we are all connected, that we are all experiencing this globally together. So we can look at, you know, TikTok videos of people in Italy dancing in their kitchen and the same thing is happening in Canada. The same thing is happening in Brazil. And it's like, Oh yeah, we're all indoors trying to improvise here, like with, with what's going on, um, and also seeing how like a disease isn't an isolated thing that it that it is very much connected, and that we are connected and that we can help each other as well. We've seen enormous amounts of altruism, like you said, like people coming forward, people, you know, just I remember in the first weeks like cheering, cheering doctors and nurses and right. workers and like beautiful, inspiring stories that, that come out of, of the pandemic because people are called to rise to the occasion to do their best uh, for, for fellow humans, which is lovely. Um, and I think that's the, the kind of positive thing about it. And then hopefully 
the fact that like COVID happened and then this big second like or next anti-racism movement uh, happened, like I, I, as far as I can tell, the biggest since the civil rights movement, um, then in a way COVID facilitated drawing our attention to this existing situation because everybody was, you know, at home, like in a state of just like, we can't do anything or like, we're not going out, we're not distracting ourselves as usual. And so right. we're drawing our attention to anti-racism, which positively has yielded a lot more social awareness about racism, a lot more institutional valuing of education and awareness about racism as well. So that also gives me hope that like, you know, in the sense that COVID showed us that we're all connected, it also drew our attention to these things that needed repair and needed work. And I hope that it does end up building, you know, more responsible and healthy and happy connections with, with each other. I certainly hope so. I think that would be good. I, uh, you know, I have talked to some psychologists, though, who, you know, uh, I was speaking to um, an IO psychologist who helps companies uh, deal with structural racism. Uh, she works out of Ottawa here. But she was saying that anti-racism training as a concept doesn't really work. Yeah. That going into a company and, you know, teaching all of the staff, like this is how, you know, microaggressions work and that sort of thing, that you end up getting a, wow, a Lynn Bayak situation where she just storms out of the room like, well, you guys aren't yes. even listening to me. I'm not racist. I'm out, right? Yes. Or, you know, the day after the training, it goes back to normal or whatever, right? right? So I did the training. We're good. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I filled out the survey at the end. I checked the right boxes. I got an That's 82%. So I'm good, right? Yeah. Exactly. It's yeah. like, I'm a good person. What do you want from me? Like, yeah. you're just... <laughs> <laughs> Problem solved, right? Yeah, so, yeah. How do you do it then? How do you, uh, when you're an institution, you're, I don't know, a university, you're the CPA even, right? A small company yeah. with 10 yes. employees. How do you make sure that that company understands yeah. the way systemic racism works and works to address it all the time? Yeah. Yes. Okay. That is a big question. I'm asking the biggest questions. I, I love know. it. <laughs> <laughs> So one, as you said, like training alone is not going to change the the way things are going. Like it's 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 always important to have education. You know, like we we see like you know, like we just need to build more awareness. We need to have better education. We need to have more education around this issue, and that's true. Um, but if it's only you know an isolated workshop here or there, or like an invited speaker comes in, does a training, leaves, it doesn't change the way we operate. And the way we operate is what needs to change fundamentally. We need to examine how our structures are built in order to keep certain people out. We need to examine, like I mentioned before, like how do we value work? What is a good job? What is a high status job? What is a high paying job? And then who gets to hold that job? So things like that, where it's like, we have to really look at the structures that involves things like affirmative action, but it also involves um, really like examining and undoing the way that we have created, it's hard because like we create a culture like of work or we create a culture of government based on like the steps that were taken before. So this involves really like right. restructuring in a big way. So, I mean, for example, like let's say um, at certain universities, there's no necessary recognition of the fact that, that there are other religious holidays um, and then right. offering accommodations for that. I remember experiencing that at York University and that was amazing because then it was like, it's Eid, 
okay, so you, you don't have your exam then, we'll schedule it here. Or like, it's it's Shivaratri, okay, we'll schedule it here. Yom Kippur, all right. Like, But there's a recognition, it's visible. So that has to do with like representation, acknowledgement and arrangement so that no one is disadvantaged. In other spaces, that's not the case. Like the other, the other holidays just aren't even, it's like they don't exist. So then we operate as though everything's fine. No one's negatively affected. And in fact, people are negatively affected. There's also things with rates of hiring, like an, an admissions. So in universities where, you know, we know that black and brown students are, are less admitted, especially black and indigenous and Hispanic and right. East Asian. Those are the ones that are the most like negatively affected um, by these like structures of admission, also for hiring for jobs. So all of these things have to change where it's, it's not just that it's like, well, we have a training. So now I feel like I can be nicer. It has to be that structurally, we're not disadvantaging people. So we're not hiring people based on whether or not their English or French is just like ours or whether or not um, they like come in and present in a way where it's like, you're dressed like us or you're not dressed like us. Like there, there's all these right. criteria that we have that we have to look at, but that end up discriminating against other people. Um, same with mental health issues and like how like we tend to prioritize, like, can you be productive and work overtime all the time? and not complain because you're passionate about the topic great like instead we have to actually look at oh have we structured work in a way that's healthy for people um and that's fairly paying people so that people don't have to you know work enormous hours just to to put food on the table and right. also the way that like we value people's time outside of work and outside of school so that it's not just like this is your life and why are you complaining um but really like you have a life and this is a big part of it, but you know, you deserve to have that whole life around you. There's many, many things I can, I can go on. Like I, but really the attention just has to go to, to structure, to functioning, to blind spots instead of yeah. like, is this the opportunity for everyone to do that? I think so. I mean, Anytime is a good opportunity, but I think. <laughs> but, but I mean, we've already, so many of us, almost everybody, right, yeah. has already restructured their entire structure, right? Like the company structure. We don't have the physical building anymore. We're not going into work. We're all, you know, work hours are for many of us just whatever we feel like they ought to be for the day, right? Yes. yes. Uh, so it, it strikes me that this is an opportunity for a lot of places to when we reopen let's do it in a methodical and well thought out way in order to address this right yes it is and also i mean to that it would also be a good opportunity to ensure that everybody has the same access to internet and to right. facilities with internet like we we like let's say for myself i've been very fortunate and privileged to be able to work from home because I have a home where I can have my own office. Like I have enough space to do that and I can create privacy and I have a secure internet connection and I have all my things set up at home. Most people don't necessarily have all of that at their disposal. So if we can ensure that people do have that at their disposal, then we can start to kind of, let's say, even out who gets to do what, when, where, how, and all those right. things. Mm. And and also I think, I mean, that's that's something that I've heard come up an awful lot. Uh, not just from psychologists who are doing remote teletherapy, but also from, you know, economists and, and people like that that I've been speaking to, is one of the biggest issues that should be addressed by this is access to uh, broadband, internet, all that, 
in remote communities, right? Yes. That right yes. now, Canada just doesn't have the coverage that it ought to for yes. people in especially remote northern communities where, yes. you know, all of that stuff is much, much more difficult. Exactly. So remote communities, uh, rural communities, economically uh, disadvantaged communities, and the families that live in those communities too, because we kind of think of like, well, like let's say in Montreal, I was working with the community center more recently, we were building a partnership, but they didn't have access to good internet and they're, they're, the kids that wanted to participate in our meditation and yoga programs didn't have access at home. So it's kind of like going into neighborhoods in cities and outside of cities. Um, to ensure that everybody does have access and that broadband is available everywhere um, and is affordable. Um, right. If, if not free, I would like free internet. <laughs> <laughs> At the very least, a public utility, right? Yes. So you, you yes. pay your bill the same way you do your hydro bill or something. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Something like that so that it becomes truly accessible um, and available to everybody because that's how we function. We can't just, just like pretend like it's a luxury to have a, a computer with internet or a phone with, with data, you know, like that's where our entire society is now built around these, these functions. So. Right. Well, as you can tell, I am lucky enough to work from my home. Are you in your home right now? I am in my home and I'm also staring at your stand mixer with great envy. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is literally my second most prized possession next to my like good, good barbecue. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I have not used it nearly as much as I thought I would. I thought I'd doing all the baking and the things that everyone else is doing. But, yeah. you know, I find that I end up just, I'll take two hours out of my day and make a really good supper. But I, if I bake muffins, we eat them that morning and then they sit in the container for a week and a half and I throw them out. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, like it's it's good for when you crave it. And then after it's like, what do I do with all these muffins? I just... <laughs> <laughs> yes, and I find I think that I enjoy the process more than the final product, right? Like it's beautiful the process. Yeah. <laughs> you know, everyone else eats my baking once and then that's it. So maybe <laughs> <I'm> <laughs> but it is it is beautiful to cook and to prepare yeah. food. It very much is. Now, this space in your house, you have yeah. you chosen it to be very blank on I you it looks a little bit like the the hallway outside my high school gym. <laughs> I mean, so, <laughs> yes, I have, I mean, so some part of it was that I have, um, I, I live alone right now, so my, my apartment is set up so that uh, originally I have like a front room, which is a, a yoga room, okay. and I would also have like yoga sessions or like, or breathing practice sessions with like other members of my yoga community, but then that stopped, so that, I was like, do I, I'll do my classes in here, and most of my walls are, are white. There's an occasional like a plant or a picture, but I, I was like, I was, I was on the floor and I was trying to set up and I was like, okay, this isn't working. So I've moved everything into, this is my, my little living room office nook that I created <laughs> space out of. So like, there's a picture over there, but there's also a lot of papers over there. So I don't want you to see them. <laughs> so instead of backing it out so you can see like, oh, pictures, cushions, it's more like, just, just look here. There's a white wall and a couch. <laughs> That's what I like about these Zoom things is everyone is comfortable with their own level of clutter, right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, at least, and the, the one I can't do though is that fake background where you oh. put that on and then your face kind of half disappears. And, you know. 
that's why like sometimes they're hilarious like i have a colleague and he's always at the beach and i'm like good for you but <laughs> but there's times where you know like depending on what you're wearing or the color of the background it's like and then one eye is missing or something else happens and i'm like that no i'm not gonna do that i'm just gonna gonna have a setup where it's simple i can teach my classes i can have my meetings and it's like just yeah. plain unobtrusive <laughs> <laughs> so tell me a bit then about the yoga and this community center uh what do you do there and uh how did you get involved with that oh okay so i've been with uh an organization called the art of living for 20 years now so it's a global humanitarian and spiritual organization that focuses on self-development and community development through yoga and yogic philosophy and wisdom um, and a lot of the programs center around learning breathing practices, meditation, um, yoga, asana, like the positions and postures and things like that, and overall health and wellness. Uh, and I've always just felt so great, like benefiting from the programs that I was like, well, why don't we just get more involved myself? So I, you know, became like a volunteer and a yoga teacher through them. Like I, I teach the breathing practices and, and techniques and, um, and I've been doing that for years, but then, uh, when I moved to Quebec city, uh, this is five years ago for, for my position here at, at Laval University. Um, what happened was that there was there was a smaller a smaller community uh, compared to when I was in Montreal or Toronto, like these big city centers. And um, there was a yoga space that was being used, but then um, but then like it changed hands and we had to kind of find a space. And, and I was like, you know what, let's just, I'll just get like a new apartment where, with a big living room and convert <laughs> it into a yoga space. <laughs> For the most part, at least here, like uh, locally, what we do is, is more like a weekly practice session and then occasionally I'll teach like a, a, a program like the Art of Living course and and uh, and other times we'll have like, you know, like a potluck or something like that. So I was like, you know, it's simple enough and small scale enough here that like I can use like my living room right? Um, compared to like other other cities where there's like a bigger like just a bigger community in general with more people. So then mm -hmm. we you know, there are community centers like a like a, a physical space that's just for art of living and yoga and all those things and and that's you know it's nice yeah. to have that too <laughs> but you know i do what we can here and it's cozy so far everything has gone online because we can right away once once we knew it was a global pandemic and it was transmitted by you know droplets in the air and breathing next to each other it's like we can't sit in a room together enclosed and, and do deep breathing it'll just <laughs> it won't work so everything has gone online which has in a way also been both interesting and strange because we all know about Zoom fatigue, but at the same time, really nice to, to still be able to connect with each other and still be able to maintain practice. And I've gone and done like a breathing practice with my friends in Halifax. And it's like, I would never get to see my friends in Halifax, like outside of the, you know, the right. one retreat that we do in the summer or the winter. Like, this is really cool. I just get to hop in <laughs> on my friends there. And so that's, that's actually been kind of nice. All right. Well, thank you so, so much for doing this. I have really enjoyed speaking with you today. And, uh, and thank you for just having such a warm and positive presence like and, and receptive. <laughs> it's just been wonderful talking with you. <laughs> to read more about the work Dr. Yampolsky and others are doing during the pandemic, visit the CPA's website at cpa.ca during February, Psychology Month in Canada. Mindful is presented, hosted, recorded, and edited by me, Eric Bowman. Our theme music is Avenues by David Taylor.